Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. Our guest on the Health Design Podcast this week is Sula Mantelvanos. She is a designer by training and following an accident some years ago has put her skills to use designing a better way for patients to work in partnership with doctors. Here to tell her story is Sula Mantelvanos. Sula, you're very welcome to this call. I'm delighted that you were able to find the time to connect this morning. It's unusual for us to be talking in the same time zone, but you're <laughs> also in Melbourne, which is a delight for me. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Moyes. It's lovely to be here and to be able to share my story and hopefully help others connect with others. There's nothing else we can do with these awful experiences. You may as well put them to use. <laughs> now, I know that you're a designer. And in my experience, over the last more than 200 podcasts, when art and medicine come together, when art and science come together, the real magic happens. So I'm really pleased that you come from that designer stable. What made you go into design? Tell us a little bit of your backstory. I don't really recall a time when I didn't draw. You know, as a child, really, that was something, like all children, really, we start drawing, we, we draw before we speak. But for me, that obviously kept going. There was a gift. It really is a gift. Nothing to be egotistic about nothing to get really up on a high horse about because it, it truly is a gift and it's been my guiding light through my life now that I I look back I'm in my 50s now and I look back and realize how much of a guide it's been for me my this creativity so I went through school and I, of course my parents weren't really being Australians invited to the country they really we knew they were immigrants. They didn't really get involved in in the education process, or uh, so we were really left to our devices. And I always drew. I didn't really have anyone to guide me. But at the age of that, sort of on that cusp of heading into those final high school years, the decisions of you know what's your elective going to be, what are you going to do from here, started, and I, I investigated and found an art course year 11 art course at a technical school and I thought oh look this this has to be my way you know I can't be doing accounting and you know sort of history and all that which I I mean I loved it but what I loved most was art and I could only ever do it as an elective up until that point and so I I went home and and said look mum and dad this, this course is amazing and I'd love to do it and so they were wonderful. They always listened. They were always aware of my ability, but they couldn't guide me as to what I could do with my ability. So it was great that they left that to me and I was able to make those decisions and, and pave my way. And so I ended up the art just from year 11 to year 12 into uni. It was all art and design. And I graduated as a graphic designer. I did explore art. I did my printmaking and I did, you know, lots of drawing, years of drawing. But something just said to me, you may not be able to make a great living out of that. (laughs) So why don't you just go and sort of head down the design path first? And that's what I did. And so I graduated as a graphic designer. And from there was very fortunate to always be able to find work, employment in an industry 
that was related to design and then eventually I started my own business. I met my partner Theo. We got married and, of course, put everything on the line (laughs) because when else are you going to do it? And we started our own business together. So he had a marketing background, which was fantastic for me because I love the the behind-the-scenes creativity and he loves all the people stuff, the account managing. And so that really worked well for us. And we started our own business and it really just went from strength to strength. And we ended up actually doing a lot of work within the health sector. So over the years, mental health organisations, actually one of Australia's leading mental health organisations was a client for years. But lots of cultural and event work. um, And I was really fortunate to be able to keep my drawing and my designs and all of that was very much incorporated. Once we got established as a design studio, then I started to make art as well, and that was able, I was able to exhibit that at some really fantastic galleries. And so I started to establish the fine art career. But um, just as that was happening, that's when I had my accident, and so things changed. But I had, so I just started to establish the art fine art career. Design was kicking off. I mean, we were working with. Oslo by night, we were working, you know, with our Melbourne and Australian clients by day. It was a really full life, active, social, really, really physically active, healthy, all of that. Everything was just really, it was a brilliant life, inner city Melbourne, living in a warehouse, working, living in that same space. Very, very, very sort of fulfilling life, a very fulfilling creative life. I completely resonate with what you're saying because Melbourne was for many years the most livable city is in the eyes of many of us still the most livable city a fantastic place to live so it sounds like you were living the dream and enjoying things and then there was as you say the accident talk a little bit about the accident I see it as two accidents (laughs) so I was very aware of my health and so I, I mean, I did yoga four mornings a week. I walked every morning in the afternoon. I ran the dog at the park. And because we were living in this, this hub in Collingwood, which was it's really an inner, a very inner city suburb, we walked everywhere. So if we wanted to dine at night, we would walk. It was, I was very active. But I thought I, I sit a lot for my work. I do a lot of sitting. And so I bought a Fitball, one of those exercise balls. And it was wonderful. I sat on it for well over oh, a year, probably nearly two years, and one day it burst. And I was, was yeah, in the morning, uh, 11 a.m. in March 2007, it burst and I dropped to the concrete floor. And I guess you would say that's one accident, but really the biggest accident, the one that has affected me to this day and impacted my life, was the misdiagnosis. So I would actually regard that as the bigger accident than the actual impact of my coccyx to the concrete floor and the shock. Those things obviously have come together to cause the the health, the the accident on paper in the medical industry. But as far as I'm concerned, the accident was the misdiagnosis. That That was the biggest trauma. What were your symptoms? What were you having to cope with on a day to day basis as a consequence of this event? I mean, to be honest, after the initial shock and the pain, I crawled to the concrete floor and and I laughed. I had, as a creative, I had this vision, you know, the Warner Brothers, Coyote, Roadrunner, 
you know when he's always hovering when <laughs> when he's always about something's happened you know the rock's gone from under him the and and he just and he's hovering for a second and I just had this vision of me hovering for a split second because even Theo was looking at me at the time and he said I swear you just hovered for a split second so we actually laughed we didn't think much of it because there was no break you know we had the x-ray there was no break there didn't seem to be a fracture and we just thought oh this will be fine so you know thick sort of dull ache a bit of burning obviously I was tender and sore and I sort of tricky sitting and walking for a long time. But after seeing my GP, she just said, look, you know, so you're probably going to be fine, but if you're not in eight weeks, come back and see me. I've been seeing my GP since I was 17. She knew me. She knew my body. She knew a lot about me, but she was one of two people who said, look, really, I can't help you here. From what I, I, this is beyond me. And so she forwarded me on to a sports GP. She thought that this sports GP may have a little bit more specialty. And so I would see the sports GP and then every few months I'd go back to my GP just to make sure that she was still in the loop with what was going on with me, even though the sports GP would have been writing back to her. You know, referrals and that sort of the communication within the system is is really broken. And and I was quite active in my in the management of my care. I felt the communication was very important and it was broken. I had to connect the dots and keep people connected. And it was interesting actually when I used to go back to my GP, she would say, Oh, so what have you tried, Sula? What have you tried? You know, and I would say to her, I've tried Feldenkrais, I've gone and learned Alexander Technique, and I've met the most amazing traditional Chinese medical practitioner and and she would write it all down in her little book so she could help others and I I remember thinking how strange that was I thought hang on a minute aren't you meant to be help isn't this meant to be the other way around this is kind of backwards what's going on here and I guess that was my experience throughout that four years how backward and how unfamiliar and how strange the process was. It was not what I I knew about healthcare where you walk in, you receive, you, you report the problem, you receive a list of ways to, to, to treat yourself or or options. But that's not the case with chronic pain or with a complex health issue. It seems to be back on you to plan the next step. And that's really hard. What was the correct diagnosis and how was that diagnosis eventually made? As I said, I was with, I had gone to the orthopaedic surgeon who said, look, you check out mechanically, you check out fine. I I think you have neuropathic pain. And and so he sent me to a neurosurgeon. The neurosurgeon, he was on boards around the world. And and so I, I walked into his practice and he I couldn't sit and I couldn't stand. I mean, by that stage, I was such a portion of myself. I was non-existent. I was really, I mean, I was at my wit's end and I said, look, just can you please just chop my coccyx off, do something. Um, This is unbearable. And he said, quite often people hear this, it's probably not appropriate, but, you know, you by far the worst case I've seen. But, look, let's not do anything drastic. I'm about to head overseas. Can I please present your case? to my colleagues and, and report back to you. And I thought, okay, well, you know what, it's another few months. And he came back to me and said, look, you know, we really should consider a stimulation device. 
because why would you take drastic action? Not that, not that implanting a stim isn't, but it's serious, it's serious. But um, he thought that that was something to try first. And I had heard these recommendations before. And so we, I went down that path. I had a peripheral stem implanted and it really did for me. It, it felt like it cracked the glacier that I was up against and, and was able to pop it, pop, to break it into smaller portions. For a start, I was able to think and I was able to sort of plan my next steps and one of those was to contact Professor Lorimer mostly so I had obviously done lots of research on pain I had heard him speaking to Margaret Throsby on the ABC our, our fantastic ABC Classic FM her, her beautiful lunch live interview and I had heard him probably a year before talking about how great our brain was at learning these bad tunes just as good you know just as well as it was learning good tunes and I thought this guy's mad I turned off the, the radio and thought, no, that's not my brain. My brain's really good. It wants to go back to who I was, this active, amazing person. For a, a professor, what are you talking about? But um, then I bought his book. I bought some of the books of research and read about it, and I thought, oh, look, what if this is right? And so I wrote to him and said, look, I seem to be the worst case wherever I go. Everyone tells me that. I just thought I'd contact you. Maybe I can be some research help to you or maybe you can help me. You know, I was desperate. I was really desperate. Even though I was slightly better, I was far from being active again. And, and he replied and he said, well, tell me where you are and I'll put you in the right hands. And in his signature, his signature said, fizz bumble poor, please excuse my brevity. I'm trying to get my computer to write what I'm thinking. And I thought, this is my man. I'm going to find something here. This is my man. He's crazy. He's, you know, left of field. This, this might be a great thing. And, and he wrote back and said, go and see this physiotherapist. She's French. She's, she's in the general public system at the Royal Women's Hospital. So I didn't even pay for this appointment, which I found astounding. And I walked into the appointment and within two minutes this lady understood my language I was out of the forest out of the the country where no one understood me I was finally back in Australia speaking an English language and the person on the other side could understand what I was saying not only could she understand me she could diagnose me she had words to describe and and to define medically what I was experiencing so I for four years went around to people saying I feel like I've got my finger stuck in a PowerPoint. And she would reply, so that's sensory pain. And I thought, oh, my God, there's a word for this thing? And then, of course, the diagnosis was pudendal neuralgia. But in association with that, you have allodynia. Of course, you have the fatigue. You have, you have a whole lot of other things going on. But she was able to define it. And I will never forget this one. She, she applied pressure, put me on the bed and applied pressure on my pelvis. And that second where the pain switched off. And I, I, and for me, as a creative, I just strangely, the first vision was a blank piece of white paper, just white, this clarity, this beautiful white, clean. And I just, I, I guess I associated that with a new work or a beginning or a, but it, it, I'll never forget that feeling. And I'll never forget that 
that sudden communication going back and forth of having this conversation where I started a conversation, she would continue it and explain that we had this, it was just amazing. And together we made more progress. So from then I knew I had neuropathic pain and I knew I had um, all of these things going on with not just this, not just the, the, the feeling of pain, but function. She was also able to talk about my toilet function, so there's toilet signals. All of that came together. Why, you know, running down the legs, the feet, spasms throughout the, the fire, all of that she was able to explain. Even strange things like, and it took me a little while to even gather the, the confidence to, to do this with her, but I, I had this short skirt, this short denim skirt, and I swear every time I wore it, I would have a better day. And it took me a while to say to her, look, I think this is happening with this skirt. Could that be? She said, bring it in. And I took it into her and she she had one look and she looked at me and she said, oh, my man. She walked out and she came back and she had this pregnancy belt that women have when they're carrying their babies, which is adjustable on each side of your hip. And she said, Sula, you're not crazy, she said. That skirt has seams in the right place for you and it's just it's just giving you the right support. And so on and on it went. So we finally, I had this trust and I had this friend and I had this carer who could really understand and explain things. And um, from there, you know, we went to nerve blocks and we went to other things that were treatments that were appropriate for me. And, of course, the trauma, the distress, all of that started to reduce because I was making progress but sadly, four and a half years of being in that chronic state is going to leave you with some damage. So I'm dealing with the fallout now. <laughs> the Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and mental health. You described that beautifully. You described it like when somebody is speaking the same language, you hear this voice, and the voice says, I hear you. And I believe you. I believe, I believe you. There's all this clarity, and suddenly things become better. Now, had you met this person six weeks after your injury, things might have been the same from that point on, and you'd never have looked back and thought, anything off it you'd have thought no 100 percent moist 100 percent getting to the right person at the right, at the right time. time and often that person is dealing with a complex condition that they understand as you say the person that dealt with you was a world authority took your case to a world conference came back with a solution and then put you in the hands of the person who could deliver that solution effectively Time is is critical to chronic illness, but also the things you're not doing, not just the things you are doing, and that's what a lot of my path was about. I was discovering all the things that were not appropriate to me before I would find the things that were, and it, it took such a long time, but if you've got someone to unravel and clarify that and get you to the source of where you need to be, that place you need to be quicker, then you don't have that added distress because neuropathic pain, well, actually all, all pain, it, it is emotional. It's your nervous system and your brain. And so if you're distressed, if you're tired, if you're not sleeping, 
if you feel misunderstood, if you feel like no one believes you, all of those things are just out of trauma. I saw heaps of psychologists trying to unravel this mess and this frustration in my head. It's part of the process. Or Now we have coaches, fantastic coaches. Now we have online groups where, I mean, people are brilliant at helping people. I didn't have any of that. There was nothing online that was there for me. And interestingly, not only did this physiotherapist understand my condition, but she tapped into me as a designer and she tapped into my work. And she's, and for a split second, I mentioned to her, you know, I should really build a website. There's, there's nowhere that people can go. And she tapped into me. That was a connector for her. That was a way for her to reach me. And she said, Sula, you, that's what you should do. She actually came to my home with all, I mean, that's above and beyond any healthcare practitioner, came to my home with all of her research. She had studied uh, trauma in China. She had done the most amazing work. I mean, French physios, they know the pelvis like nobody else. And she handed me all the information and she said, Sula, build the website that you're talking about, build it. So what she gave me there was also a mission, a reason to get up, a, a purpose to keep just pushing through that proper proportion tiny bit more before you rest a tiny bit more before you sleep a tiny bit more and that was that pathway the pacing forward so she she did a lot more than just diagnose and head me into the right direction but that's what a great healthcare practitioner does they tap into you they do, and particularly when they feel that they are able to help you and they have the solution and they understand the pathology, they understand the treatment and all the rest of it. Unfortunately, for many conditions, as you know, and as many patients experience, it's either going to be a very simple thing that can be sorted out with the expertise that is in the room, or it's going to be the diagnostic odyssey. And here you are in a position where you are now able to really create another solution for people, another avenue for people to find the help they need, a partnership between patients, patient advocates and clinicians, whether they are experts in your field or not, you are able to empower those patients. As a designer, how did you do that? How did you find your way to making this more generalizable? Uh, well, as a designer, I look at everything and ref try and refine it. You know, how can I make it better? In constantly looking at things. And, of course, having lived this experience, number one, how can people get better care, the tailored care, the right care, what we were talking about at the right time to avoid ongoing issues? I had experienced misdiagnosis. So, you know, uh, this is put, putting all the distress, all, all the problems, I guess, into a design brief perspective the amount of appointments I had how much that cost the effects of practitioners not being able to help other patients because you're seeing one patient too many times the inaccuracy inaccuracy of information the referrals the way the fragmented system where one you I saw a physio well no one knew what I was doing with a physio because the physio never reports back really they don't have to report back and I could be doing six sessions with the physio my GP or my neurosurgeon or they're not going to know what each other are doing and just that passive seat you go in sit down 
at the appointment and you're waiting for the doctor to give you the way forward, well, that may be the case for a lot of health issues. It's not for complex chronic illness issues. The, the way forward is actually directed and driven by the patient. And I thought, okay, what am I going to do with all of this? What would I do with it? If I could, of course, I was still not well enough to process and work the way I used to, but I had this idea for a type of health CV. I knew, I identified that the problem was that care was not patient-centred. It was revolved around all of the clinicians doing some sort of work, but then no one really, really coordinated around the person. So wouldn't you be, wouldn't you put the patient at the core? And of course, if a patient became a data steward, if they had all the information, not only would that be easier to relate to everybody and put them all in, in the loop together, but wouldn't that be a great form of management and empowerment and self-efficacy? I mean, it's a treatment in itself. I do look at the way we manage other aspects of our life that aren't as important as our health. I mean, health is the number one, it's the critical information of our lives, but we know where our passport is, we know where our licence is, we know where our birth certificates are, we know where all our insurance papers are. We know where all of those things are that, you know, we can reach out and grab them, but we, our healthcare is in somebody somebody else's hands and not only somebody else's hands, it's scattered everywhere. We've got bits of ourselves everywhere. And so I thought, no, hang on a minute. There needs to be a way for the patient to gather their information, tell their story so they can be understood because the fact that I was a designer for my physiotherapist gave her an opportunity and the Board of Innovation, who are wonderful, call these social determinants and, and, um, and connect, they call them, the word for it is a touch point, fantastic touch point. So if you can make that touch point with your patient, then you're going to talk their language. So they might be a gardener. They, they might be into horse racing. They might be builders. They might be radio hosts. They might be podcasters. If you need care then you have to incorporate their love and their passion into their, into their care. Otherwise, it's not going to work. I just think you're not going to be able to reach them, you know, and trust and connection is a big part of care. Where can people find the tools that you're talking about? So I've called this health CV. It's called My Health Story. So they can find it at myhealthstory.com.au and also in the app stores. I've completely funded it myself. I have a fantastic development team, so there's a lot of function in it. So things like being able to create a timeline of your main events, being able to perhaps document current treatments or physiotherapy programs or medication, sometimes your medication, trying different medications, you'll be able to try those at it documents your mood, whether you've been exercising. And the shareability, I think, is what is its main function, that you can create a private email link. So it's really easy. I knew practitioners were going to struggle learning a new system. They haven't got time. So they said this bit had to be very, very simple. So essentially it's a private URL link. So you will send that private link ahead of your appointment 
and the practitioner clicks on it either before or while you're there and they can get a great look at what you've been through, what you're doing, what your goals are, how you're feeling. Got an adjustable questionnaire in there so they can read up about how you're managing, who you were before, who you want to go back to. So, And then, of course, if you don't like that practitioner and you've shared your information with them, you can retract it so they can't see your information yet. So privacy is very, very important in this bit. But what it also does, I use it with my mum. So my mum is at home. She's had a stroke and I manage her home care. So in Australia we have home care packages and the aim of them is to keep people in their homes and keep them out of nursing homes. But you've got to coordinate the care. So I need personal carers to shower her and I need physiotherapists and I need... And to find those people, well, I can't go back to the GP and get a referral every time. So I've created a health story, put it all on my mum's history. And then when I need a physio, I just send out her link and say, are you able to look after my mum? Can you manage stroke and mental health and all of the other issues? And they'll say yes or no. And, in, I mean, that's just saved how much time, how much, how many appointments, So the physio walks in and says, hello, Helen, how's your garden today? Not, hello, Helen, tell me your story. And then four appointments later, she finally grasps my mum. No, she grasps her before she walks in. And I think that that gives, and I've I've heard reviews from people who feel more confident when they're approaching their patient because of the information they had. It's real information. It's not data. It's not a referral. It's not medical speak. It's who is this person? What do they want to do? What were what were they doing when they when their life changed? And and who do they want to you know get back to? What do they want to do? And I just think that is the first and foremost treatment is where does this person want to go back to? And you're not going to be able to do that unless you know their story. It's a, it's a new way of thinking, but it's patient centered. It's the way forward. I think the patient has to be the data steward. I think we have to own our health. If we expect good tailored care, then you've got to tell people who you are and what your experience has been in and you've got to manage it. Put it in your hands. It's yours. After my experience, I think that that's the way forward. And then we allow practitioners to help more people because there are so many people waiting for care. I mean, I think that the the pain specialist waiting list is like two years in Melbourne, in Australia, I think. Sylvia, you're absolutely right. Partnership is the way forward. We are living in a world with increasing chronic illness, with increasing complexity of the conditions that doctors are having to manage and healthcare practitioners are having to manage worldwide. It's been a joy spending time with you. Thank you so much for sharing so much of your story, for being so generous, and we wish you all the very best. Thank you so much for having me, Moya. It's been beautiful to talk to you, wonderful. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to help people. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.